Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Good morning. Um, my name is Crixie. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, I'm really glad to be here. And I hope that we get a chance to meet in just a little moment or two when the service is over. Um, Brian is off taking an opportunity to be in, uh, in Royston with our friends in Royston this morning. Um, which is a treat for them, and it means that I get to be here, which is a treat for me. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe the jury's still out on that. Let's find out, will we? Yay. Fun. Uh, we're going to keep going with our Ruth series. Um, we're in our fifth week. Um, and if you're a guest uh, with us this morning, or if you just appreciate a little catch-up, here's what we've been thinking about so far. Um, we start off by looking at um, the decision that Elimelech made for him and his family when he took them to Moab to escape a famine in Israel. And that decision turned out... Um, Excuse me. (coughs) I shouted at the football too much this week. It's really what happened. I'm not kidding. (coughs) Fun. Um, Yeah, so he went to uh, Moab to avoid a... (coughs) Oh my gosh. A famine. And uh, within 10 years, um, him along with his two sons, um, they had all died, leaving his wife Naomi and um, two daughters-in-law widowed and without much hope whatsoever. So we talked about what it is like to boost our trust in challenging or tragic moments. Um, Then we saw Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Um, Ruth chose, (coughs) I'm so sorry, Um, Ruth chose loyal love for Naomi um, over a better, more obviously hopeful future for herself in her own country. And we talked about the importance of a lifelong commitment to Jesus. And then next up, we saw Ruth meet this dude called Boaz. And um, we focused on Boaz's kindness to Naomi via Ruth and his kindness to Ruth herself when he didn't have anything to gain out of that. And we made a commitment to practicing this type of over-the-top kindness ourselves. And then last week, we saw Ruth's proposal of marriage to Boaz, which came as a shock to him. Um, And we also saw this as the start of the process of Ruth and Naomi's redemption. We saw that as a metaphor for Jesus' redemption of us, and we reflected on that through worship. Um, By the way, if you want to keep on going with that, um, there's a little playlist on Rehope Southside Spotify that I know some of you guys um, contributed to um, with like all of like the favorite redemption songs of Rehope. If you want to take a listen to that, you can zap that QR code just now. And it'll take you to the playlist, or you can search Rehope Southside on Spotify and find all Rehope Church's um, favorite redemption songs. Fun times. Um, today, we're going to be thinking about uh, the start of Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to see how some of the stuff that Brian has been talking about over the course of the last month or so um, really show their importance at this point in the story um, and uh, really help us 
um, kind of like boost our, boost our understanding of what is, is going on and see how it's really significant for us, in particular, the time frame within which the story happens and also its geographical setting. So we'll read, and we'll read uh, Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1, and it says, Boaz went up to the gate of the town and sat down. Soon, uh, the family redeemer, like that other guy who he talked about at the end of the last chapter, like the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by, and Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here, and they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and then I'm next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Great, context reminder here. So far, Boaz has been acting out of kindness towards Naomi and Ruth, um, out of his noble character, he is under zero obligation to do anything for Naomi. He is under zero obligation to marry Ruth. He is pursuing these things because he wants to. Yet the obligation does exist. And that's the whole reason why these 12 men have gathered here in the morning. And there's an obligation to do something for Naomi. Remember, like this book centers around Naomi, even though it's called Ruth. Something needs to be done for Naomi. Maybe less so for Ruth, like probably, I don't know. But like she is from Moab. She's not part of God's people. She, I guess she's only part of God's people because she married in. And like, I don't know, maybe that makes it a little bit more complicated. But for Naomi, for sure, we need to do something to help her. And like... Do what and when and hold on. Naomi has been back for like the whole barley harvest and the whole wheat harvest. And I'm no agricultural expert, but that sounds like a hot minute. Like it sounds like it's time to do something for um, like this family so that they can support themselves. So what are we going to get done? And um, we can find out what we're going to get done in Leviticus chapter 25 um, verses 23 to 25. And this is God talking. And he says, the land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine. You're only aliens and temporary residents on my land. You are to allow the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. And we can see from like the similar language used by Boaz like, and this little bit in Leviticus that this is what Boaz has in mind when he comes to talk to that other guy and the elders, like this is what he is talking about. He has the command for the provision for people in need in God's land in the forefront of his mind. Like, and so far, all Boaz's chat and all his Leviticus stuff is about fields. But we know from the story that there's more to this. Like Boaz has been proposed to by Ruth and um, I don't know like how things work, but like I'm a bit of a city boy, so like proposing just to get your hands on a field Anyway, maybe if you're a culture, that's the way it goes, but I don't know. Because there is more to it than that. Deuteronomy 25 tells us, um, when, a bro when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. 
The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So now we're getting into the stuff that is going to directly affect Ruth, but kind of in an indirect way. Because remember, this is about Naomi, um, but it kind of comes through Ruth, and it's kind of complicated, but I guess this is the deal, and this is how it works. See, Naomi needs to sell part of Elimelech's field to support herself, and the closest family member should do this. And Naomi needs a son to carry on Elimelech's line and his name, and she can't have a son, so that passes on to Ruth, and Ruth's husband is dead, so her brother-in-law, Killian, should do this, but he's also dead. And therefore, the next closest family member should marry her so they can have a kid who will be considered Naomi and Elimelech's heir so that the field and his family line can be extended. And uh, Boaz is putting these commands to the group. And so far, he's been only talking about a field, but we know where he is going from chapter three. And we know that the closest family member should do these things. And Boaz is a close family member, but he's not the closest family member. That other guy is the closest family member. He is obliged and obligated to do these things. He's obliged to, like by this field, he is obliged to make it work, to support this family. He is obliged to marry Ruth and he's obliged to provide an heir for Naomi and Elimelech. It is his responsibility. And that is a word that I quite like. Um, a few weeks ago um, at Alpha in the South Side, we were talking about who God is. And my new buddy, Jay, who's one of our guests, um, was saying that he sees Jesus as a judge, but not in the like, good guy, bad guy, boom, gavel, kind of like judge, but more like this is like the definition of like good. Like this is the standard, the gold standard that people who follow Jesus want to meet this standard. If you want to judge whether your life is going good or not, Jesus is the judge for you. And he was kind of talking about how like because Jesus' standard is so wonderful, his people have a responsibility to do everything that it takes um, to try to meet that standard. Even if they know they're not going to meet that standard, they have a responsibility to go for it. And like that's the way he worded that, and I like that. Maybe like today we've worded that, that we're going to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. Like this is the deal. We want to go for this. And we kind of like get annoyed by Christians who like sit around passively and wait for like God to like um, sanctify them when things are going to be so much more wonderful when we team up and we take a responsibility to act like Jesus and Jay, I guess, like maybe he wasn't like using theological terms like that, but like this is what he's talking about. And this, like in Ruth chapter four, is what he's talking about. Like God has set a standard here is how to care for people in need in the place where it's called by my name. This is what you have to do. And they should do it. And they should do everything that they have, like all the capacity that they have to do it. This is important. People are not going to get cared for if they don't do that. God is a judge. He is the judge that we can like measure up by. If what he says goes, then we say, yes, it goes. Because he is good. He is caring. And he is kind. And therefore, because of who he is, we can take our responsibility knowing that it's good and, and follow him in that. And this is important. God's ways are important. And when you've got something important to do, 
just get it done. Like, just get it done. Like, look at Boaz. Like, man gets there early. He gets there early before anybody else shows up at the town gate where all the important business happens. And he gets there just so he can spot all the people that he wants to see to get them to come over. And he does not want to miss his opportunity. And um, he doesn't want to miss his opportunity to do what's right. And, and I mean, we should know this from Naomi's words in the last verse of the previous chapter, saying, my daughter, wait until you find out how these things go, for he will not rest until he resolves this today. Like, no kidding. Like, he went out first opportunity, and he did it. So I think we can take a little bit of life, like just general good life advice from Boaz here. And that advice is you should always, 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 always be early. <laughs> Actually, Laura paid me 10 pounds to say that. Um, no, like if you've got something important to do, just do it. Like get it prioritized and get it done, especially, especially, especially if this is something that you are doing for someone else, if you've got something to do, go and just do it. Like just get it done. And you can communicate the importance that you have for that thing and for those people that you're doing it for by making sure you get that done as a priority. Like Naomi and Ruth know that Boaz isn't playing. Like he is here and he's taking this seriously. They know that this is important to him. And they know that they are important to him because he goes out and he just gets it done. First opportunity to help them that he can get, boom. He gets it. He's not playing. And this is when the responsibility to help them isn't even his. But he gets the ball rolling, do you know? And at this point, it looks like the other guy is going to redeem Ruth. It looks like he's down for buying the field. And like maybe then it means like he'll be down for like marrying Ruth. But I guess we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because so far, uh, Boaz has just been chatting about a field. And all of this, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy stuff, like should be prior knowledge to them. They should know this. And I'm sure it was. Like they're important, prominent members of that, um, of that town, like elders of the town. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm sure they knew what was going on. But sometimes it feels different for us. Like I know that when we're reading through Leviticus and in certain parts of Deuteronomy, it doesn't always feel like it is the most relevant um, parts of God's word or maybe even the most memorable parts of God's word. So when you read Leviticus and then you read Numbers and Deuteronomy and you read Joshua and then you read Judges and then you get to Ruth and you've kind of forgotten about what was talked about in Leviticus because it just doesn't seem that memorable. And maybe sometimes we take all that Leviticus stuff and the sacrifices and that feels so culturally removed for us and we'll just like dump that in the ancient history section of like, like I don't know, like we're fine. Like I'm sure that was relevant at some point but not really relevant to me. Ancient history. That's not the way that it was for these dudes. And something that I've really appreciated about uh, Brian teaching this, this series is like the time frame that he has brought to us, that this happened in the first generation of the judges. So it's not ancient history to them. It's the current laws of the land. They are trying to figure out the current laws of the land and how to do this. So they get it. And it looks pretty certain that that other guy is going to redeem Ruth because he's, he, he's down for the field. Like, he seems like a good dude so far. 
So um, all signs kind of point to him doing the right thing. But that's a problem, because that's not what Boaz wants to happen. Like, he wants to marry Ruth. And Brian mentioned this last week, that Boaz is going to have to be kind of smart, kind of shrewd, to make sure that things pan out the way that he wants to pan out. And he's not going to let anything go to chance. He's ready. And he gets into that gate early. And he's going to make things happen for him. So that when he sees that other guy coming and he's like, all right, mate, come here, I've got a wee hang. See that, I, see that Naomi back from Moab, innit? I, mine, her, was married to Elimelech. Cry. Pure, tragic man, but I Disney bear thinking about it, by the way. But that field's just sitting there, innit? Nothing doing with it. Somebody should buy that wee field, man. Take it off her hands, help a lassie out. A man's like, oh, yeah, oh, well, uh, I could do that. Oh, I'll do my bit, I'll do my bit. One wee hang away. And there's always a wee hang, isn't it? Just when you think things are going perfect, there's always a wee thing. I mean, he's a 10, but, and there's a wee thing. And I like a meme as much as the next guy, and I like to join in the fun. So this week, I did a little deep dive into your Twitters, women of Rehope. <laughs> and I know what you've been saying about your men. And I'm here uh, to let everybody know. Let's start at home, eh? Let's start with a, a tweet from my own darling wife. And she says, he's a 10 but. He gives me a five-minute lecture on how to pack the dishwasher while making me watch him repack the dishwasher. <laughs> and uh, I can see from the timestamp that she's tweeted that on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, giving a sanctimonious lecture about dishwasher packing does sound like the sort of birthday present I would give to myself. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, guilty. <laughs> what about the next one? He's a 10, but he wants to get an ice machine and set it on my kitchen counter. No, 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 that will not fly. And uh, Kelly's mom warned her about men with their flowing locks and their abs and their ice machines. And now Brian has none of those things. <laughs> Tragic. But we're not done. He's a 10. But he thinks a good idea for a perfect family day out is us watching him play disc golf. <laughs> so he's an 11, right? He's an 11, Pacific Northwest for life. You can click that button again there, David, uh, at any point. Boom, there we go. He's a 10, but his idea of the perfect dinner date is throwing as many things in an air fryer as he can. Okay, fair, he is a 10. <laughs> There's always a wee thing. Always a wee thing, maybe not with Gus, but there's always a wee thing. I mean, she's a 10, but you have to marry this lassie from Moab to get her. I mean, in this one, uh, the 10 is a field. <laughs> but okay, fair enough. There's always a wee thing. Like here's another one from Jamie. He's a 10, but he spends all night making fake tweets for his sermon. <laughs> yep, got me on that one. There's always a wee thing. There's always something. And this one, the thing is that she is from Moab. And this is not just that she's not from Israel. It's not that she's a foreigner. Like, it's not an immigration thing. 
Because remember how the start of that instruction from Leviticus 25 uh, says that this land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine. And you are only aliens and temporary residents in my land. This is how God talks to his own people. Like he treats everybody like they are temporary residents on his land. And there are loads of laws that God gives about treating foreigners well. Because God's people know what it was like to be foreigners in Egypt. This is something that God has, like provision and kindness for everybody, no matter what nation. So let's take the Ruth is a foreigner thing out of the equation and dump it for a second. God treats people fairly. It's not just like a foreigners in general thing. It's a Moab thing. And there's history and there's beef. Um, Numbers 21 talks about how Moab attacked God's people as they tried to peacefully pass through the territory. Numbers 22 to 24 set out in length Moab's ultimately unsuccessful attempts to curse God's people. And Numbers 25 tells us how through marrying um, men from Israel, women from Moab did the damage to God's people by turning them away from worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to worshiping the gods of Moab. And remember this timeline. A lot of this stuff, like in numbers, feels like ancient history to us, but it's not to them. It's still like decently recent for them. Not only is Ruth from Moab, she is a woman from Moab and she wants to marry into God's people. Like alarm bells are screaming at that other guy. That was the big problem in in Numbers 25. And that other guy wants none of this. And if this wasn't bad enough, do you know, it's accentuated by the geography of the reason, of the region, excuse me. And Brian has shown us previously in this series that Moab is just across the valley from Bethlehem. You can see Moab from Bethlehem, you can see Bethlehem from Moab. And sometimes, like, the proximity of a rivalry makes the rivalry last longer. Sometimes it makes the rivalry last longer than the memory of why the rivalry started in the first place. But that is not the case here because it's so recent, you know? In addition to all those numbers things, like Israel also had like reasons to be like jealous, I guess, of Moab. Like Israel has just experienced a famine. People who are going to have lost lives lost family members, lost children, the whole shebang in that famine. There was no famine over in Moab. They were Kushti. And now she's coming over here. We just got ourselves back on our feet. Are your foods not enough for you, hen? Go back across that valley. No, thank you. We do not want you up in here. That man is just like, I want none of this. None of it. And it looked for a second like that other guy was going to redeem Ruth. Like he was going to buy the field, he was going to redeem Ruth. And it is his responsibility after all, but now he doesn't want to. Ruth is a deal breaker for him. He wants none of this. But can he just decide that he doesn't want to do this? Well, let's see what happens. We'll pick up again um, in verse seven. Um, So the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Get this. An earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. 
so the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you're witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetrate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear uh, among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today, and all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. Okay, that's that then. Game over. Ruth is a deal breaker, and that other guy wants none of it. He doesn't want to ruin his inheritance. Okay, well, okay, fair enough. Most interactions, if not all interactions with Moab so far, have been pretty ruinous, so we kind of get it, but, like, not nice. Um, and that means the responsibility passes to Boaz, which is what he wanted all along. So nice one, Boaz. Shrewd moves. Well played, son. And um, the interesting thing is, though, that this passage doesn't talk about responsibility the way that we've been thinking about these things so far. It talks about the right to redeem. I find, find that so interesting. Like, how do we get from rights to responsibilities or responsibilities to rights. Like those things kind of seem like pretty linked but kind of different. I guess you can set down your rights and give up on them, but can you just decide that you want to set down a responsibility if it is your responsibility and think, nah, I just don't want to do that. There is more to this command from Deuteronomy 25 um, than what we've seen so far. So let's look at it. It says, if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the city elders at the gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. And the elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. And if he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders. She will remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. And she will declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed. Deuteronomy isn't talking about rights. Deuteronomy is talking about duty. And a great shame, a public shame, a lasting family-defining shame that comes if you do not perform your responsibility. So how do we get from this to my right to redeem? Well, I, I guess things just change, don't they? Over time, in the book of Ruth, the elders don't try and persuade the other guy to do the right thing. Naomi isn't invited down to spit in his face and be publicly vindicated. Things change. When I've read the book of Ruth in the past, like chapter 4, verse 7, the bit that says at an earlier period in Israel, made me think that this book came like right at the end of the judge's period because like, I don't know, an earlier time in Israel makes it sound like it was ages ago. And we know that there's moral decay in the book of Judges and they're not doing the right thing here. 
So it made me think that it came much later, but Brian has been talking us through the genealogy so that we know that this happened in the first generation of the judges. So at an earlier period in Israel, like what earlier period, like what kind of time frame are we talking about here? Really thankful for Brian and how he like timelines all this stuff out, shows it to us so that we can learn and understand more deeply what's going on. Okay, here we go. God gave the law to the people at Mount Sinai. And then they went up to the land and then they scoped it out and they decided, no, we're not going to go in. And then there was like the 40 years of wandering around. And then they decide that they're going to go back in again. And then you've got the book of Joshua. And that covers about a like 25 to 30-ish year period. And then the first generation of the judges, like the time frame within which um, this book about Naomi um, happens. So from when the law was first given, Mount Sinai, all the way through to this early morning discussion between these 12 men, we're talking less than 150 years. So it's not nothing, but it's not ages. It's not loads. It's not like Mount Sinai was a million years ago, ancient history. And it's not like Mount Sinai is the only time that they heard this stuff. Do you know, like Moses went over all of the law again in the book of Deuteronomy. And Joshua, when they're entering the land, went over all of the laws with the people again. And because we know from the genealogies and the timeline that Brian has talked us through that there will be people alive in the time of the events of the book of Ruth who were alive to hear Joshua do that with their own ears. This is not ancient history to them. This is current law. I'm just going to decide that I don't want to follow those laws. So is that cool? Is that cool? Can you just like set down your responsibilities and not bother with it? Well, it looks like you kind of can. The elders don't persuade him to try and do something better. Boaz gets to marry Ruth. It looks like you kind of can. And things change and things change quickly. And sometimes that feels weird to us. Like when we think about like the whole context of the whole timeline of the Bible, like 150 years seems not very much. But like to us, I mean, 150 years, like nah, it seems like quite a lot. And we think about what has changed. Like in Glasgow in the last 150 years, a lot has changed in 150 years. But this kind of thing was like brought even more home to me um, recently by something really dumb. Um, not hugely proud of this. However, um, my wife, Jamie, and I have just finished re-watching How I Met Your Mother. Um, it's not history's most wholesome show, but it's definitely not the worst. Um, and I really like the premise of it. It's just like this like dude talking too much, which in case you haven't noticed, I can quite relate to. <laughs> I love a good story told well, and um, my definition of well means make it as long as possible. So I quite like the premise of the show, but rewatching it, I find it really interesting that something set in the early 2000s and um, aired in the mid-2000s um, to the mid-2010s could feel so out of date already. Like, there are just some things that happen in it that you're like, this would not fly in the 2020s. Like, the characters frequently refer to women using Leslie Nope's second least favorite term for a woman. Um, if you're a Parks and Recreations fan, if you're not, um, that term rhymes with switch, and it's not a term that is okay to call women. 
Has it ever been okay to call a woman? No, but was it socially acceptable? Probably, and it was all over TV. And like people use that word, and how I met your mother, they're either that word or they're chicks. And they're usually gullible chicks, or they're usually dumb chicks, or they're usually drunk chicks, or they're completely irrelevant to the whole show. Like, and this is how we're going to reflect women in this show and something that was completely just accepted at the time. And that was not that long ago. That is not okay. And that is a change that has made we don't talk about women that way anymore. Good change, like that. However, there is no way that a show like, like How I Met Your Mother and what its subject matter, it's just like about like dudes in their 20s living in New York and seeing who they can sleep with would, would be made now and we would only hear about their like little sexual escapades. Like now, like stuff is like thrown at us and it's so hard to avoid like this sort of content anywhere. And you're like, can we, can, can we just not? Is it okay? Sometimes things change and sometimes they change for the better and sometimes they change for the worse. And sometimes they change quickly and sometimes they change slowly and sometimes it changes all at once and sometimes it makes no sense. But things, things change. What is socially and morally acceptable can change quite quickly. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise to us that what is socially and morally acceptable in the first generation of the judges doesn't quite match up with like the actual factual law of what it says because things have changed even in that time frame. And the book of Judges ends with the line, like in those days there's no king in Israel and everybody just did whatever was, seemed right to him. We know there's moral decay. We're not quite at that like depths of doom yet. But we can see in this passage in, in the book of Ruth, just like the little like, sprinklings, the door starting to open just a little bit to let that moral decay in. So I've got a couple of thoughts that I quite like to leave you with. And just like a little warning, um, watch out against small compromises. Because small compromises can lead to bigger compromises, do you know, like lead to ones with like bigger consequences. So this other guy just abandons his responsibilities seemingly without consequences. The elders aren't gonna do anything. Naomi isn't invited to do anything. So what other laws can I get away with just disregarding without any consequence? It's the way that things kind of happen. We never go for the big, crazy, over-the-top sin first. We just like dip our toe in a little bit. And like, oh, the water's kind of warm. And then it's a whole foot. And then it's a whole jump in. Watch out for like little compromises because they lead to bigger things. Like we want to do what is right. And we want to do it rightly. And we want to do it fully. We want to live with integrity. That's what Boaz does. Like Boaz is going to buy that field and he's going to redeem Ruth and he's going to take on his responsibility once it's passed to him straight away and he's going to fulfill it all. Like you just respect that so much. You see his noble character for real and it just like matches up with all that we've seen about Boaz in the story so far. Like that over the top kindness that he has been showing for no good reason other than his noble character and it being the right thing to do continues here. He's doing what is right, he's doing it fully, and he's doing it the right way. And I really respect that. He's a good dude, noble character. He respects God, he respects God's ways, so he follows them. God has set a standard. We do have a responsibility to work towards those standards. And in this passage, we see Boaz meet the standard and the other guy uh, missed them. 
So, of course, we want to be more like Boaz. So let's do the things that he does. Let's prioritize the important things that we have to do. Let's do them rightly without any compromises, even insignificant ones. And let's do them fully with integrity. I've got a little challenge for you guys um, this morning. And um, it's, not, it's not a hard one. Um, you know that thing that you've been meaning to get around to doing? Just do it. Like, if there's an important thing that you know that you need to do, just do it. And I'm not even saying this needs to be a big, deep, spiritual thing. My thing is going to be that I need to fill out a form for the student loan company um, so that they stop sending me threatening letters, even though that I told them that I'm back from America, and even though I've started paying off my student loans again, and even though the money is coming out of my account and into theirs, they're still sending me those letters, and it's a pain. And I'm going to do it, I don't care, but it really bugs Jamie that we get these letters. I'm going to do that thing, I'm going to do it. First opportunity, because that matters to her, and she can see that I've listened to her, and I'm going to do it. I'm not even saying it needs to be a big, deep, spiritual thing, but if you know there's something that you have been putting off that would make a difference to somebody if you did it, just take your first opportunity to do it. Friends, we are going to move into a time of response. I'm gonna invite the worship team um, to come forward. Um, as they do that, uh, let me pray for us real quick. Uh, God, we love you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that um, you are like trustworthy and great. You're good and your ways are good all day, every day. And God, we know that we have a responsibility to follow in your ways. Uh, God, I pray that you would make us more like you every day. And I pray that you put um, your spirit on us uh, to empower us to go for it, to do those things uh, that we need to do to take up our responsibility to be more like you. Uh, God, help us. Help us. We love you. We love you so much.